Good morning. Uh, we ended Samuel uh, chapter 10 last week on somewhat of a high note, right? Saul had been made king. The Israelites had their king. And uh, they found him in the stuff, right? They pulled him out of the stuff and made him king over all of Israel. But we also ended on a little bit of a low note, right? The, the worthless men or the sons of Bilal asking, how can this one deliver us? And not honoring Saul. But Saul stays silent. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at, at 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you ran out of the house and forgot your Bible and you need a copy of God's Word this morning, feel free to shoot your hand up and we'll bring you one. So just like last week, as we open up, I'm going to back up. You won't see it there, but I'm going to back up for a little bit of context. I'm going to go, if you're following along your Bible, um, I'm going to go back to verse 27 in chapter 10. And we're going to read that. I want you to, again, this is biblical narrative, so I want you to sit back and, and, and listen and, and try, to, try to see in your head what is going on there. So let's read this together. It's, it's 1 Samuel 10, 27 through 11, 15. 1 Samuel 10, starting in verse 27. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. They kept silent. Now Nahash of the, Am the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all of the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. When he heard these words, and he became very angry, he took a yoke of oxen, and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. But the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus we shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. The men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is that? that he said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there... Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Lord, we come today to be taught by your word. 
We pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to teach us from the past, to encourage us from the past, and to fill us with hope for a future with you, based on the truths that we will study today. Amen. Many miles from Rome, there was a famous country which we call Greece. The people of Greece were not united like the Romans, but instead there were several states which each one had its own ruler. Some of the people in the southern part of the country were called Spartans, and they were noted for their simple habits and their bravery. The, land, uh, the name of their land was Laconia, and they were sometimes called Lacones. One of the strange rules which the Spartans had was that they should speak briefly and never use more words than were needed. And so a short answer is often spoken as uh, uh, spoken of as being laconic. That is, as being such an answer as a lacone would be likely to give. There, in the northern part of Greece, was a land called uh, Macedon, and this land was ruled over by a man named Philip. You might have heard of him. Philip of Macedon wanted to become the master of all of Greece, so he raised up a great army and he made war on the other states until nearly all of them were forced to call him their king. Then he sent a letter to the Spartans in Laconia and said, if, if I go down into your country, I will level your great city to the ground. In a few days, an answer was brought back to him. When he opened the letter, he found only one word written there. That word was, if. The bravery of the Spartans was unmatched. But to be honest, it was a bravery that was based on man's power, on man's uh, military might. Spartans believed themselves to be fearsome warriors, and for that matter, so did the rest of the world. Both Philip and his son, Alexander the Great, did not succeed in conquering the Spartans. Eventually, however, Rome would conquer the once mighty Spartans. Their faith in man and man's weapons failed to protect them, and ultimately they were overpowered and defeated. It's difficult to imagine a people that should have been more like the Spartans than the Israelites, right? As we'd seen time after time after time, God intervening, God thundering down, God uh, splitting waters, God fighting their battles for them, driving back superior numbers and superior equipment. But the Israelites as a whole were not Spartans. And today we're going to see that even with an unfaithful and at times cowardly people, God was going to move and destroy Israel's enemies and affirm his choice of a king to a dubious people. I say dubious because we, we saw it, not up there, but I read it to you, uh, right in verse 27, certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and not, did not bring him any present. Right? Remember from last week, uh, present wasn't like, it wasn't like a birthday present, right? It wasn't like a small slight, like, oh, you didn't get me a present, what a jerk, right? This was, uh, when you offered a present, it was a sign of fealty. You, you were serving whomever you gave this present to. So they, they said, no, you're not our king. But Saul kept silent, right? And we see in verse 1 there, now Nahash the Ammonite came up, and he besieges uh, Jabesh Gilead. Right in, in, uh, in the portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe you remember those, they found those, they were in caves, a little shepherd boy was throwing rocks in caves, and he heard pottery break, and he went up and they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, and these were from the, the Masorites, that was a small town near there, and they were known for 
their, uh, their scribe abilities, right? They, they wrote these things out, and, and because of that, we were able to ascertain that uh, the Old Testament we have that, that is, is newer than what they had written is actually very accurate. Uh, the book of Isaiah, they found almost a complete, well, it, it was a complete copy of Isaiah. And when they analyzed this copy of Isaiah from 400 AD to the copy that we have now, they found 99%, I think it was, there was a point something on there as well. And the only differences were small differences like and and for and things like that, that, that really didn't change the meaning of the text at all. So in the Dead Sea Scroll, we, they found a little portion that talked a little bit more about this Nahash, right? And he'd been oppressing the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now that probably doesn't bring anything to your brain, right? But when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, there were two tribes that said, hey, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan, right? So they crossed over into the Jordan and they took the Promised Land. But the Reubenites and the northern Gadites decided they wanted to stay on the far side of the Jordan. So here's Nahash, and he's been attacking these people. Um, the, the text that they found in, in the, the Masoretic text actually says that all of the men that had stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan had had their right eye gouged out. But why the right eye? It's a little weird, right? A little oddly specific, right? Why the right eye? Well, we don't think about this these days because not a lot of us do a whole lot of sword battle, right? But if, if you think about it, which hand do you hold your sword in? Your dominant hand, right? Which, for most of us, is our right hand. Same as back then. Most people were right-handed. So which hand would you hold your shield in? Your left hand. Now, if you're, you're bringing this up and you're bringing your shield, you can't see what's happening in front of you with your right eye gouged out. Right? You've got your, your swords over here, and your left eye would be peeking over and looking, but your right eye would be seeing what you were doing. And so with that shield in front of that left eye and no right eye, you're blind. You can't fight. Right? So this is what he's doing. He's going in and he's, he's gouging out the right eye of all of his enemies. He's making them worthless in battle. And the Masoretic text gives us a little clue on why Nahash is here. It said 7,000 men had escaped from Nahash and they ran to Jabesh Gilead. Right? So they're, they're here and um, We'll read more about Nahash last week. He was actually uh, part of the impetus for the, the Israelites to demand a king, right? In, in 1 Samuel 12, if you look at verse 12, we see uh, they said, because of Nahash, you all wanted a king to fight. So all this to say that Nahash was a bad dude, okay? He was a bad guy. And he rolls up on Jabesh Gilead, and you start to understand the terror this must have caused them, right? This guy that, that has... Remove the eye, the right eye out of all of the, the, the eastern side of, of Israel. He rolls up in front of your town. And we, we think that surely if this would have been the moment that the citizens, citizens of, of Jabesh would, would look to the west where Samuel set up that, that Ebenezer, right? That pile of stones and said, God has helped us thus far, right? And they would have remembered that the Lord destroyed the Philistines. And they would have, they would have said to themselves, the Lord has helped us this far. We will trust the Lord, and he will fight the battle for us. And maybe they will remember that they just installed a king, right? Remember the guy hiding in the stuff. Now, think about this for a second. Why did they want a king in their own words? 
to go out and battle before them, right? And so God had given them a king. And yet, what do they do here? What do they do? All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. We will make you our king. Right? So they, they blow right past the main king, Yahweh, right? They blow right past the earthly king, Saul, and they say, we'll make a covenant with you and we'll serve you. Well, that's pretty cowardly, right? But okay, maybe he, he gets his peace treaty and he's happy, right? No. Nahash says, okay, I'll make that treaty with you, but I'm going to take the right eye out of everybody. Okay, back to the drawing board, right? So the elders of, of Jabesh said to him, leave us alone for seven days and let us send messengers out. And I read this, I read this this week and I was like, thing, you know? Why would you let them get help? But this is how confident he was, right? He was very confident. He was a very uh, cruel and confident man. He said, sure, send him out there. Go ahead. Let's see what happens. So they send out these messengers. Now where do they send them? Do they send them to Saul, the king? Go get the king. No, they send them throughout the territories of Israel. It's just a hell, Hail Mary. Right? It's a shot in the dark. Maybe somebody will come save us. I don't know who. But maybe somebody will come save us. And so the messengers go out into all Israel. And then the messengers, they come to Gibeah where Saul is. And you would think that Saul, being the king, would have like, I don't know, people that tell him what's going on. Right? You're the king. I would want some information. Right? I'm not a king. I'm just a pastor. And I have Brynn, and she tells me all sorts of stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nothing bad, nothing bad. But she does. She says, you know, hey, uh, yeah, I didn't notice this person in church. Are they doing okay? And I'm like, man, I didn't, I didn't even notice. Thanks, Brynn. Then I give him a call. Right? Saul, you would think, being the king, would have people that would, you know, hey, Saul, something's going on over here. But he, he doesn't. He doesn't. Because the, the messengers tell all of the people and they lift up their voices and weep. Why are the people of Saul's hometown, the king's hometown, why are they weeping? They have the king, the big guy, the shack guy, right? They should be excited. Finally, we get to test this guy out. We get to see if he's all that he says he is, right? And here comes Saul. This may be why they were weeping. I don't know. Because the king of Israel, the guy they just installed, comes walking up with oxen. He's been plowing the fields. Okay, maybe there was something to Samuel 1, uh, chapter 10, verse 27, right? Guy's been installed king. He's out plowing fields. But while the earthly king is bumping along behind some oxen, the true king, is about to move, right? We, we see the Israelites, they're nowhere near where they need to be. No one's calling out to God. No one's calling out to the king. We see the king plowing fields behind oxen. But then we see the true king step in. Then the spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. We've seen that before. I mentioned it last week. We've seen that before. Those, those specific uh, words there. The judges all had the Spirit of God come upon them, but there was only one judge that had the Spirit of God come upon him mightily, and he ripped apart a lion as if it were a baby lamb, and 
see this, that the Spirit of God came on Saul mightily when he heard these words. And he, he became very angry with a righteous anger. And he took a yoke of oxen and he chopped them into pieces. Does this sound familiar at all? If you remember, clear back in Judges. Remember that really horrible story at the end of Judges? Where the Levite chopped up his concubine that had died and sent them out. Well, Saul does a similar thing here. He chops up all of his oxen and he sends them out by messengers. And he says, whoever does not come after Saul and after Samuel, this is important because later in his career, he's not going to be thinking about Samuel. But right now, he's in the right spot. He says, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Okay, so God blew Saul. But then look what God did, does for the people. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Because think about this. The messengers were sent out from, from Jabesh Gilead, right? And, and they were sent out to all of Israel. And nobody stepped up. Nobody said, yeah, we need to go take care of that guy. So God moves on Saul. Now Saul sends out messengers, and God moves the people. God gets the people off their dust. And they come together as one man. He numbers them in Bezek. It's uh, as far north as Jabesh Gilead, but it's, it's a little further over. So it would have been hidden a little bit by the hills. And, and he numbers them, 300,000 of Israel and 30,000 of Judah. It's a weird thing to say there, right? Like, why would you say that? Like, we numbered the church, and the church was 107 of them were the Malars. Why would you pick out the Malars, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's a picture of, of what's coming. Remember when the kingdom splits and Israel's to the north and Judah's to the south, right? Just a little picture there. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. Deliverance, that word there, literally meaning salvation, right? So we've seen uh, they, they need to be delivered. Now Saul says, you will have salvation. So the messengers told, and I love this line, the messengers told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Are you kidding? This guy's going to take your right eye out, and tomorrow you're going to be saved. And you're glad. Okay. <laughs> I would have thought they would have been a little more excited than that. I don't know. And the men of Jabesh, they, they get smart, right? So they, they say to Nahash, they said, Tomorrow we will come out to you. <clears throat> Tomorrow, right? And Saul lines up all the people in three companies. And at the morning watch, right? The morning watch would have been uh, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So he lines them up in the darkness of morning. They cross over the Jordan stealthily, right? When I was in the army, we always had to do this. Uh, every morning we were out, we had to do stand to. And a half an hour, 45 minutes before the sun would come up, we'd all go get in our tanks. We'd fire them up. And then you'd sit there as a gunner and you'd look through the sights and you'd scan back and forth to make sure there were no enemies. Because that's a prime time to attack, right? Everybody thinks you're going to be sleeping or you're not going to be ready. This is what they were planning on. Uh, Nahash was sleeping. They were not ready. And so they slaughtered them, put them into three companies, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Noonish, right? And those who were survived... Uh, scattered so that no two of them were left. I mean, they were just running. Right? Like when you lift up a, a thing outside, rock outside, and all the bugs go, 
That's, that's what they were. God lifted up that rock, and they went, Pow! Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. I suppose when you're, when you're in that bloodlust, when you're, when you're fighting like that, death is what you're thinking about. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance. Again, salvation. For the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. Did you hear something in there? I've said a word three times now. Remember what I told you? When we look in the Old Testament, we're looking for repetition. Right? Repetition draws our eye to it and it should make us focus on it. We talked about Gilgal last week, right? What does Gilgal mean? It means this is where I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Right? So now God has rolled away this reproach, this Nahash, who wanted to uh, humiliate the Israelites, who was, who was ruling over them. God rolled it away. And now they go to Gilgal and they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they offered sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. An awesome story, right? Everybody likes to see an underdog story like that, right? But we need to remember it's in the Bible. So it goes beyond a simple narrative, right? This isn't just some fantastical Hollywood movie that makes you cry at the end because. You know, the, the champion wins and the underdog fights back. We need to remember Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what instruction or encouragement can we take from this story to give us hope? The simple answer to that question is this. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. Right? And there is nothing or no one that can get in his way, not even ourselves. Look at the Israelites. They were cowards, yes, but worse than that, they were unfaithful. But we look at our passage today and we see that God not only empowered the king, but the people to accomplish his purpose. And that should give us hope. Because, I'll just be honest here, there are times when I'm a coward. There are times when I'm unfaithful. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not you. There are times when I don't believe that God will fight for me. And instead, I place my faith in worldly things, right? I mentioned in our announcements, uh, there was good news of, of forward progress. Sorry, I'm getting a text. I love here. Uh, forward progress in our, our kitchen, right? So now I want to fill in the rest of that story. A few weeks ago, we received the notification that Kitchens Unlimited was going on it, right? They'd taken our money. They ran with it. They didn't buy anything with it. They just ran with it. And I was terrified. How am I, as a pastor, a brand new pastor, going to get up at my very first business meeting and tell the church that 27000 and change was gone? 
what is this going to do to our church? Is it going to rip us apart? Are they going to blame me? Are they going to lose faith in me? Are they, are they going to, what's going to happen? But I don't preach at you nearly as much as I preach at myself. How can I stand up here each Sunday and tell you all to trust in the Lord and he would see you through safely? How can I stand up here and preach about the providence of God and how he will fight our battles for us and then go home and be a whimpering idiot? So I had to trust God. It was one of those put your money where your mouth is moments, right? And I prayed about it. Talked to Allison about it. We prayed about it. And we gave it to God. And we trusted God to fight this battle for us. But we had no idea how, right? Four weeks ago, a gentleman by the name of Clyde and his wife, Annette, started coming to, to Brentwood Bible Fellowship. They visited a few times during COVID, but they never really stuck. So they decided to give it another try. They sit right, right back there in the back corner there. They come to the second service usually. And then they came and, and they listened to a few sermons, and for some reason they decided to come back. And they asked me the morning of the business meeting, they said, hey, can we come to the business meeting? We'd like to see how you guys do business. So would I, to be honest with you. But it's my first one, so let's give it a shot. Come on by, right? So they came to the business meeting, they heard the announcement, they heard about Kitchens Unlimited, and afterwards, Clyde came up to me. He said, you know, my son's a, a vice president of a, a company over in Georgia. They, they do free uh, refrigerators and stuff like that. Let me see if I can get him to get us some stuff for coffee. Great, thanks. He goes, you know, I'm going to have some contractor friends. I'll check it out. I said, okay. He goes, I'll, I'll come by this week. We'll take a look. Okay. You know, people talk all the time. <laughs> Tuesday, I'm sitting there in my office, and uh, Clyde comes in. Hey, let's take a look. Okay. So I took him over, I showed him the kitchen and everything, showed him what it was. He said, okay, let me talk to some friends. Okay. Thursday morning I'm sitting there, and Clyde comes back with two more people. And they come in and they're contractors. And guess what they've refurbished uh, for, for several years, 20, 30 years? Churches. And they're contractors. And they're familiar with the city of Brentwood and the inspectors. And Randy and Frank come in, and uh, Joe is over there with us. And, and they look around and they say, well, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. This is a great design, though. Like, like I really think we could, we could do something here. And I'm sitting there like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we really could do something here. <laughs> so I talked to Randy afterwards. I gave him a call. I said, hey, you know, would you be interested in taking this project on? He said, you know, I think I would. I think we've got, we've got good stuff there. I think I want to see this through. That's great. That's great, Randy. What do you, what do you charge? You know, we, we want to make sure that we pay you for your work. He said, you know what? I'm, I'm a Christian man, and, and I like to give back, so I'm not going to charge you. He said, I got Frank sitting next to me, and he says he wants to help out, too. So I called Frank. And Frank is going to interface with the city for us. He's going to handle the plans, permits, the inspections. And Randy's going to work with Joe, and they're going to, they're going to get that kitchen set up. 
Christ, I'm charging from the community. Israel to deliver them from an enemy king or his promise to watch over his church he also promised to deliver us from a very real and very cruel enemy known as Satan and sin by using the final king the almighty king the son of God Jesus Christ and this story it, it's, a, it's a picture it's a murky picture in Hebrews uh, it talks about how the Old Testament is their shadows or copies of what's in heaven, right? So this story, it's, it's a murky picture. It's not perfect. Right? It's like a Polaroid that you shook too much and any of them is coming in. But it is a picture. It's a picture of a meek king. Not meek like wimpy and afraid. Meek, which means power under control. Think of martial arts. You know, they, they train and they, they, can, they can do all sorts of crazy attacks and everything, but they're also trained to control. Right? He's a meek king, power under control. Saul held his power in check. He had mighty men that, were, that went with him to his town. Right? There were mighty men that he could have ordered to just knock down those guys. Who, how could this man save us? He could have murdered them all that day. He was a king. He could do what he wanted. But Saul had held his power in check when certain worthless men insulted him. And Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter while certain worthless men insulted him. There's still women today. How can this 2,000-year-old Israelite guys hung on a cross. How can he save us? When Pilate questioned him, he said, look at all the charges they're bringing against you. Do you have nothing to say? And Jesus didn't answer one word. And just like the city of, of Jabesh Gilead had a cruel and terrible enemy, we have a cruel and terrible enemy that prowls around in the night looking for someone to destroy and just like Jabesh Gilead had a terrible past. Remember in Judges when uh, they, they, the Levites sent all those pieces out and they made a vow. Israel, Israel made a vow that everybody should come and punish that town for the evil that they've done. There was one town that didn't come. You remember the name of that town? Jabesh Gilead. Right? They didn't come out. They were worthless. They were wicked. They stood with wickedness. They wouldn't stand against the horrible evil and were considered unworthy and detestable. And you remember at the end of that story, the Israelites went up and killed everyone and took the virgins and gave them to the Benjamites, right? And then they rebuilt. We have that same title. 
For while we were yet enemies, enemies of God, he died for us. Just like the promise that Saul gave of salvation to the people of Jabesh Gilead, we have been promised salvation through a Savior, through Jesus Christ. The Bible, just as Saul provided salvation to those people, our King has provided salvation to all who believe. And this is our hope. God was faithful then, He is faithful now, and He will always be faithful. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've seen it. We have an Ebenezer. Christ has done everything and continues to do everything. This is what allows us to say, like Paul in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 50, Now this, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We have victory today. Amen. Today we have victory. And we can place our hope in the God that saved Israel, that saved that little worthless, like completely unworthy town. God saved them, and he will save us as well. And that is the hope that we get from this passage. In a minute here, we're going to sing another song, and our elements have been placed back there. We take the Lord's Supper. This is a, a, a ceremony for believers. This is a meal for believers. Right? It is our Ebenezer. It is our marking of something that happened that there was nothing like ever in the past, and there will be nothing like ever in the future. Salvation. Salvation has occurred, and we remember it every month on the first Sunday. We remember that salvation, and that's what we put our hope in. If you're here today, and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, this meal is not for you yet. You're in the right spot. You're where you need to be. And if you want to place your faith in Christ and you want, you want to, to pledge your loyalty to Christ, you want to repent and make him your Lord, when we sing that very last song, not this next one, but the very last one, I'll be standing right here and I would love to share communion with you. I would love to share the God of salvation with you.
good God, your terribleness would be terrifying. But we would be washed away like bathwater chucked out a window. Lord, you are a good God. And you have promised us that if we believe in our heart and profess with our mouths that, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, clothe us in his righteousness for salvation, Lord, that we will be saved, and that is our hope. Lord, we thank you for your word which gives us that hope, that your word which allows us to go back 3,000 years in history and see where you have been faithful every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Every promise you've made, you've kept. Lord, which gives us hope that this final promise, the great trumpet blast, where we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Oh, Lord, we look forward to that day. Your salvation. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Amen.